It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the years after the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, a pamphlet of Russian origin was widely circulated around the Western world. The protocols of the elders of Zion claimed to prove that a group of Jewish leaders was pulling the strings behind every major global event and putting members of the Jewish faith into positions of power. Never before have a race and a creed been accused of a more sinister conspiracy. Some of the features of the would-be Jewish program bear an uncanny resemblance to situations and events now developing under our eyes. In 1920, it was even written up and given credence in the Times. But a year later, one of the newspaper's correspondents stumbled on proof that they were fake. A very curious discovery has been made by a Russian here who is working for the American Red Cross. It is that the Protocols of the Learned Elders is largely plagiarism of a book published at Geneva. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the lie that the Times nearly killed. Part 2. Publication and Reaction. So, to recap, Philip Graves, the Times correspondent in Constantinople, has sent an old book in French called The Dialogues all the way to London on the Orient Express. The book was given to him by an exiled Russian nobleman named Raslovyev. And the book is important because the text in it is often identical to that in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the basis of a conspiracy theory widely believed around the globe that Jews have been secretly plotting to take over the world. But Graves now has proof that the apparent secret meeting of world Jewish leaders in the protocols never took place and that the supposed account was copied, often word for word, from an old book. Finally, the Times editors have that book in their hands, conclusive evidence that the protocols are a forgery. And soon after, Graves' scoop is published. You'd think it would be splashed on the front page, but no. Guiding me on this journey through old copies of the Times and their associated artefacts is assistant archivist Leanne McKeever. Believe it or not, even scoops didn't make it to the front page in this period. You only have adverts. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of adverts on the front page of the Times, but you have to go to page nine to find the grave story. And it's in those three parts. And the headline of the first one is in quotes, Jewish world plot, 
and exposure, the source of the protocols, and this, this bit I really love, Truth at Last by Philip Graves. Before receiving the book from Mr X, I was, as I have said, incredulous. I did not believe that Sergei Nilos's protocols were authentic. They explained too much by the theory of a vast Jewish conspiracy. The Times published three articles on consecutive days in August 1921. The first part explains that the conversation attributed to the Elders of Zion in the Protocols pamphlet is identical to a conversation between Montesquieu and Machiavelli in an 1864 book called The Dialogues. Mr X is Graves' source, the Russian émigré Raslovyev. Professor Nilus's account of how they were obtained was too melodramatic to be credible, and it was hard to believe that real learned elders of Zion would not have produced a more intelligent political scheme than the crude and theatrical subtitles of the protocols. But I could not have believed, had I not seen, that the writer who supplied Nihilus with his originals was a careless and shameless plagiarist. The second article lays out text from the protocols and the dialogues side by side letting readers see how they match up. Fully 50 paragraphs in the protocols are simply paraphrases of passages in the dialogues. Is it necessary to produce further proofs that the majority of the protocols are simply paraphrases of the Geneva dialogues? The questions now arise, how did the originals become known in Russia? And why were the protocols invented? And in the third and final article, Graves explains why he thinks someone created this forgery. Their motivation, he believes, lies in pre-war, pre-revolutionary Russia and with a man called Sergei Nihilus, who Graves mentioned in his first article. The principal importance of the protocols was their use during the first Russian Revolution. They were designed to foster the belief among Russian conservatives, and especially in court circles, that the prime cause of discontent among the politically-minded elements in Russia was not the repressive policy of the bureaucracy, but a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. They thus served as a weapon against the Russian liberals, who urged the Tsar to make certain concessions to the intelligentsia. Nihilus seems to have been a complete crackpot. My other guide in this tale is Rose Wilde, a writer for The Times. There's a wonderful photograph of him with the hair in all directions. He was a sort of religious conspiracist. When Nihilus first published his pamphlet attributing the plagiarised secret conversation to Jewish world leaders, it was a turbulent time in Russia. Between 1904 and 1905, Russia was humiliatingly defeated in a war with Japan. The defeat spurred the First Russian Revolution and subsequent pressure for reform from those who wanted the Tsar's powers limited. Aside from being deeply religious, Nihilus was also a reactionary conservative and a supporter of the absolute power of the Tsar. At the time, and subsequently, lots of people like him suspected that Jews, antagonistic to Christianity and order, were behind the movement for radical change. It was a theory that even showed up in the Times. And there's one, I think, extraordinary letter in the Times where a man called Clark says, I've done a count of all the Bolshevik politicians and out of 550-something 
400 and something are Jews. Well, he has no possible way of knowing this. He's obviously bonkers, but this was a kind of obsession that people had at the time that the Bolshevik revolution was a Jewish conspiracy and hence the fertile ground for the protocols. So Graves' theory is that Nihilus, or someone close to him, plagiarised parts of the dialogues to form the basis of this anti-Jewish pamphlet. The idea being to shift the blame from the deficiencies of the Tsarist system onto a scapegoat. So much for the protocols. They have done harm, not so much in the writer's opinion by arousing anti-Jewish feeling, which is older than the protocols, and will persist in all countries where there is a Jewish problem until that problem is solved. Rather, they have done harm by persuading all sorts of mostly well-to-do people that every recent manifestation of discontent on the part of the poor is an unnatural phenomenon, a factitious agitation caused by a secret society of Jews. After these three articles came out, the Times published an editorial either written or endorsed by the then editor. Don't forget, this is the same man who commissioned the anonymous piece just a year earlier, the one we now know was written by a Russian general, implying that the protocols were probably real. In the 1921 editorial, Wickham Steed comments on Graves' articles. We have, of course, no political object in making this discovery known. On the general aspects of the Jewish problem, our attitude is known to be impartial. And we have no intention of taking sides in these political controversies on this question, which too frequently engender excessive passion and obscure its real character. So he's not handing in the towel completely. It's actually, it's it's really mealy-mouthed, isn't it? Because He's you know, still we, referring to a Jewish problem. Yeah, which, he's, which his own correspondent has discovered is an entire forgery. So he, there's a Jewish problem, no matter what these things said, it's just that it happens to be that these ones were a forgery. I think what it reveals is that the editor was an editor who couldn't ignore a bloody good scoop. But on the other hand, he's not going to concede entirely. But on the other hand, he does think this is the end of the protocols, doesn't he? He does go on to say, at any rate, the fact of the plagiarism has now been conclusively established and the legend may be allowed to pass into oblivion. As far as the Times was concerned, they weren't going to get involved in political discussion about the origins of the protocols, but what the paper had now done was put them to rest. The archive shows a big response from readers. So this handwritten letter is to the foreign editor. It's from Graves. He says, I hope the protocols business has been satisfactory for the Times. I have been almost embraced by various Hebrews and much congratulated as if I had been the discoverer of the key, not the lucky discoverer of the discoverer. People were talking about the articles and wanted to share them more widely. So we have this external letter dated 17th of August and it says, I am much interested in your articles upon the Jewish peril. And he asks if you'll be producing the articles in a pamphlet. That letter is written from Westbourne Terrace uh, and his name is Sir Isidore Spielman. So in front of me, I have a pamphlet that was produced by the Times. It's 24 pages long, there's a preface, and it has inside the three articles and the leading article. 
So the Times would have produced them themselves and sold them for one shilling. And what's the title? The Truth About the Protocols, A Literary Forgery. There is London Printing House Square, which is where the Times was. Mm. Printing House Square, EC for one shilling net. In addition to running its story, can now expect to make a little bit of money out of it. We also sell, well, we'll license it to New York for $150. And there's interest from South Africa as well. We try and approach Poland and France to see if they can print it as well. So it's... It's getting spread about across the countries. They ran an ad for the pamphlet for some weeks after the articles were published. And you write in, you write to the manager and send, I suppose, a postal order, do you, for one and tuppence? Mm. Tuppence to cover the postage, I think. But while the Times was advertising the debunking of the protocols, it was also advertising something else. We have a letter sent to the Times um, that says... You've revealed that this is a forgery, yet you have an advert for the Jewish peril in paper. You're kidding. You staggered me, because I thought I knew quite a lot about this. In other words, the Times were still advertising the Jewish peril after (laughs) exposing them as a forgery. Wow, Leanne, wow. So here we have a letter dated 17th of August, 1921. It's handwritten, and it's quite hard to read. But at the top, you can see someone's cut out an advert for the Jewish peril that was featured in the paper of that day. And then attached to it is a copy letter that would have been sent back to the the person who wrote in. It says, Dear Sir, many thanks for your letter of yesterday's date. I have given instructions for no further announcements of the Jewish peril to appear in the Times. Okay. Uh, that's just a marvellous exchange, isn't it? So someone's noticed one of these tiny adverts for the very publication that the Times has found is a forgery, clipped it beautifully to their letter, which is addressed 113 Park Street, W1, um, and says, what on earth do you think you're doing, putting adverts like this out at the same time as you tell us it's a forgery? And actually, the Times has turned around and said, you're quite right. We're not doing it anymore. Rose, we're employees at the Times, you and I, and we have been for a little bit, haven't we? Do we end up feeling proud or not proud of what the Times has done through this, do we think? Including carrying adverts for the Jewish peril long afterwards and then, when somebody complains, not carrying them? I think it's very difficult to say that you're proud or not proud of a publication which has gone back for... 200 and however many years and attitudes to things have changed so much all the time. There are occasions when you think, oh yes, I, you know, I'm glad I work for the Times because it did do that very good story. But there are other occasions when you read things that make your hair stand on end. I have to say, though I find it fascinating Knowing a bit about the period and a bit about the history of anti-Semitism, alas, I don't find it surprising. Coming up, how the rise of extreme nationalism in Europe brought the protocols back into fashion. Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of the Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. The Times has consigned the protocols to oblivion in 1921, except they haven't been consigned to oblivion because... Anti-Semites all over Europe still believe in them, and what more powerful force for anti-Semitism in Europe at this time than Nazi Germany, where Hitler has taken over in 1933. Uh, As a consequence of which, there comes a trial in Bern, Switzerland, when the Jewish community seeks to have prosecuted the Nazi publishers in Switzerland of the protocols in the form that they have been published there. And the communities are looking for witnesses to testify at the trial. And of course, who is a better witness in this than Philip Graves, who can testify to how he discovered that there was a forgery? But... Now, Leanne, can you take us through what we know in terms of the exchanges within the Times about Philip Graves and him testifying at that Byrne trial? So we have this letter here from Graves to the editor of the Times. In, it's dated February 28, 1935. Graves, no longer in Constantinople, was now the foreign editor and had been since 1929. And it states that he's received a note from Neville Lasky. And Neville Lasky, it should be said, is part of the Board of Deputies of British Jews. And he's asked him if they can provide documents to the trial. Grace goes on to say that he doesn't want to provide the the name of the third party without permission. The third party is Mikhail Mikhailovich Raslovyev, the source of the proof for debunking the protocols and referred to in Graves' article as Mr X. In fact, he says he doesn't remember how to spell it. He says, I do not want to appear over fussy as far as I myself am concerned, but I have step relations whose connection with me is unfortunately known in Bavaria. They have had a bad time already, one because of his wife, his grandmother, was a Jewess, the other because his wife's sister married a Jew and he himself, as an ex-guards officer, was always a strong Bavarian monarchist. The German embassy, which is full of Nazi agents, knows of my connection with these people and I am rather afraid that if Fleischauer and these people get off with it and go on publishing stuff in the anti-Semitic press to the effect that the exposure of the protocols was a fake done by me with corrupt motives. This may react a bit on my step-relatives who are decent people. So that's what he says in 1935. Now, how does that then proceed? We have a letter dated 19th of April 1935. It's a typed letter. And it's from Wickhamsteed to William Lintsmith. So this is from the previous editor at the Times to Lindsmith, who's the manager of the Times. 
Lansdowne House, 7, Holland Park, 19th of April, 1935. And don't you like this? Not dear Fred, dear, Fred, dear Lint Smith. Mm. This is the era where they still called each other by their surnames. He says, I have told Lasky that I have no objection in principle to the production of the letter, but that in practice I should like to see it. So yes, he requests to see the, the letter. I guess it's the, one of the first ones from Rasselab. Here's a trial going on in Bern, yeah. and here's all these people the in, in London who are occupied with it. By now they're able to make photostats, and that's a photostat of that letter going right the way back to 1921. Here's this letter from April 23rd, 1935. It's to Nevelasky and it's from the manager of the Times. And it says, I send you herewith, as promised, four photostat copies of each of the documents you require. The Times provided photostats, an early version of a photocopy, of some of the original documents Graves had, but he still declined to appear in person as a witness. The Swiss Federation of Jewish Communities who had brought the case won the Bern trial of 1935 and the defendants were fined. And that, I had thought, was the end of the matter. However, the Times archive throws up another letter from Graves, this one from 1937, when it seems that the Swiss Nazis were appealing the decision. Graves writes to the manager of the Times. Neville Lasky of the Board of Deputies of British Jews has been in contact with Graves keen to know if he will reveal the name of Mr. X, his source in Constantinople. You will remember that at the time of the Bern Protocols trial, I thought it might be unsafe to give the name of this person. And he goes on to the letter to explain why he thinks that there's good reason to provide the, the document. Now in 1937. Oh yes, okay, right. Might I add a personal reason which induces me to express the hope that the Times might see its way to supplying the material to the parties interested through Mr. Neville Nasky, which is the Jewish community of Switzerland and their lawyers. Statements have been made several times to Nazi papers to the effect... To the effect of what? So he says, one, that the Times correspondent in Constantinople was really Mr. Lucian Wolf whoever that is, but it's a Jewish name. Uh, number two, that the Times correspondent at Constantinople was a man of straw who was paid or persuaded by the Jews to take credit of an unreal discovery. And number three, that the Times correspondent at Constantinople was of Jewish origin. So what he's referring to there, Graves, is the fact that the Nazis have already made these claims. And given that they've made these claims, he thinks that there should be some pushback against them with the actual facts. The first two allegations are more comic than important. As for the third, however, it might put German friends and relatives of mine into a difficult position. In other words, that the Times should provide more documentation which might take the heat off Graves himself. Not sure how, but that's essentially what he's arguing. And what that tells you is that at this point in 1937... Whatever the Times may have thought in its editorial of 1921, the anti-Semitic thing is rolling and rolling and rolling in Germany, so much so that somebody in Britain has to be scared about it. What happens next in terms of Graves' family in Bavaria isn't clear, not from the Times archive anyway. In the appeal trial, however, 
the Swiss Nazis were acquitted on formal legal grounds. You may be wondering, though, what of our man Graves? Graves remained a special correspondent for the Balkans, writing about Greece. He then wrote about Ireland in the 19, early 20s, but went back to Palestine and Syria. And eventually, he was one of the writers who was commissioned to write the official history of the Second World War. It was a strange publication because it was a live history. It was written while the war was going on. And he wrote four of the quarters. that They were published quarterly. And then after the war, he went on writing occasional leaders through the 20s and 30s. But um, he retired in 45 to his Irish estate where he had his butterfly net and he went out and caught rare butterflies add one little thing to this. Those histories of the Second World War you talk about, they were bound in black covers. And I don't know why, but in the Communist Party office that my dad worked in, they had them all. Wow. I read, looked at the pictures in those books when I was a kid. Rose, when you, when you suggested we do this, had you any idea where all this would go? I had no idea of all the background, absolutely none. I mean, I obviously knew about the protocols, but I didn't know about the Times debunking the protocols and I'd had no idea about all this marvellous correspondence. I don't think I'd ever really heard about Graves himself as such a fascinating person. Some lies never quite die. As we know, despite being conclusively debunked, the protocols lived and still live on among conspiracy theorists and haters of Jews. As the great Italian author Umberto Eco told the Times in 2011, the scandal for me is that from the moment the Times revealed a hoax, it was believed more and more. The declaration of the Times was completely useless the protocols were still published. Echo was an Italian in whose lifetime Hitler took power and under whose dictator Mussolini, many of the Jews of his country were deported and 8,000 died in the camps. You could understand how he felt. But even so, in Britain at least, and in America, from the moment of the Times publication in mainstream society, the protocols were dead. You can probably tell by my name that had anti-Semitism really taken off here, my family would have suffered. We at least can be grateful for that century-old scoop. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Times Assistant Archivist Leanne McKeever and Times writer Rose Wilde. The work of Philip Graves was read by Bill Bingham. The producers were Edward Drummond and Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer is Asia Fuchs. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, 
You can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.